It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Thursday, February 17th, 2022. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. Health officials in Sitka are encouraged by the steady downward trend in COVID infections in the community. A total of six new cases were reported on Monday and Tuesday, lowering Sitka's seven-day average to 44. At the latest meeting of the Sitka Emergency Operations Center on February 9th, it had already become clear that Sitka was on the downward slope of the Omicron surge. Mount Edgecombe High School Superintendent Janelle Vaness said that between students who were fully vaccinated and those who had contracted the virus, about 90 percent of the school's population now had some form of immunity. She said that some mitigation measures were being relaxed both on campus and off. So we are currently working on a phased plan and we will take it slowly. Uh, You will start to see students in town. They began town leave again, Um, CMART runs and uh, they've been at the Sitka basketball games. So you're going to see our students, the Mount Edgecombe students, out and about a little bit more again. Sitka School District Superintendent Frank Hauser reported that the decline in cases has eased staffing shortages in the schools somewhat. There are currently no cases associated with district buildings. He added that a plan to revert to a masks-optional policy in school buildings that was derailed in January is back on track. Hauser said that the district's Smart Start teams had evaluated regional health metrics before making the decision to move ahead with the masks optional plan, which will go into effect on March 22nd when Sitka's mask mandate sunsets. The downward trend in Sitka is good news, but statewide infections are still running fairly high, with 468 new cases reported on Tuesday. Nevertheless, after a daily high of 3,400 cases in mid-January, Alaska as a whole appears to be recovering from the Omicron surge. Both the state and Sitka remain in high alert. The Emergency Operations Center reminds Sitkins that a mask mandate is in effect in public indoor areas until March 22nd. The governor's task force to review the effect of bycatch in Alaska's fisheries is working to organize against its tight timeline for submitting recommendations to state and federal policymakers. As KSTK's Sage Smiley reports, it also has to balance commercial and subsistence interests. Bycatch is when fishing vessels catch something they're not targeting. It could be tanner crab in a black cod pot or halibut scooped up in a pollock trawl net. It's been an incendiary issue in Alaska's fisheries for decades. Now, as stocks of crab, salmon, and halibut decline, trawl fisheries have come under fire for their role, which represents the vast majority of incidental catch in and around Alaska. The governor's office took notice. Governor Mike Dunleavy established a task force late last year with a deadline to submit its recommendations in November. But during that time, the Alaska Bycatch Review Task Force also has to establish its own priorities, break into subcommittees, and decide what it's going to focus on before its mandate expires in just nine months. And there's a lot of information to sort through already as it plays catch-up. At an almost six-hour meeting Friday, the task force heard presentations from state and federal fisheries managers and questioned them about existing bycatch data. Kevin Delaney holds the seat on the task force designated for sport and personal use fishermen. He said the task force needs a clear focus to be effective. If we just start throwing data at the wall hoping something sticks, we're just going to spend the next nine meetings doing the same darn thing that the North Council's already done and the Board of Fish has already done. We're here because a problem has has risen to the top and loud enough that the governor called us together. Over the last year, some of the loudest voices advocating for action to reduce bycatch have come from tribal organizations in western Alaska, in communities that have seen subsistence salmon harvests dramatically reduced or stopped entirely. Even early on in the task force's process, frustrations are simmering about who's in the loop. 
Kuskokwim Intertribal Fish Commission's Mary Poltola said she wasn't notified of the meeting in advance. If there were real interest in hearing from the public, there would be a real effort, you know, put to letting the public know when and where the meeting is happening and how to provide their opinions or their feedback. The composition of the task force, the timing of the task force, 100% of the task force is a campaign charade. Peltola questioned the need for a task force at all. She says the Dunleavy administration, through the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, already has tools to manage fisheries to give relief to struggling subsistence stocks. But others expressed optimism. At its Friday meeting, the Bycatch Task Force heard from a variety of fisheries stakeholders, including a number of trawl fishery representatives, who say they're already using best practices to avoid bycatch. United Catcher Boats, which represents pollock and cod trawlers, says its members are collecting data and are willing to share findings with the task force about what it's found keeps salmon, halibut, and crab out of nets. But... UCB Executive Director Brent Payne also told the task force he doesn't see much room for improvement. I got to be honest with you. I don't know if we can do a better job than what we're doing right now. Payne explained the bycatch limits and system in the Bering Sea Pollock fishery are very motivating to boat captains already. Every single tow that goes in the water in the Pollock fishery right now in the Bering Sea, those captains, the first thing they're thinking about is what the bycatch rate is. While it's required to be reported, there isn't a federal cap for chum salmon bycatch. Last year, federal data show trawlers in the Bering Sea scooped up more than half a million chum, pink and silver salmon, and almost 14,000 king salmon. In the Gulf of Alaska, groundfish harvesters took even more king salmon as bycatch, but that does fall within federal limits for king salmon bycatch. Even so, critics say it represents tens of thousands of fish that aren't in smokehouses, feeding predominantly native communities in western Alaska. Karen Poletnikov called in to demand concrete action from the task force. She's an Anchorage-based program director for the Aleutian Pribilof Islands Association, which represents some of Alaska's most remote coastal communities. It's really about the only thing that we do control, and, and that is the bycatch. When discussing how to divide subcommittees, the task force discussed dividing by fishing sector or by species. Poletnikov questioned why the force would give an outsized influence to the trawl industry. The industry has had the chance to mull it over themselves, amongst themselves before and will continue to. But this opportunity here from the public is unique. Across gear groups, both Alaskans and representatives of the Seattle-based trawl fleet called for a clear problem statement for the bycatch task force to address before it goes any further. The task force assigned half of its members to get started on that. The next meeting of the bycatch task force is scheduled to take place over teleconference March 9th. By then, there may be a clearer idea of what the governor's bycatch task force will attempt to accomplish before its deadline to report back in November. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. The first annual Sitka Festival focused on bringing cultural awareness and revitalization to Petersburg through workshops and discussions. Part of that process is reclaiming the Tlingit language and indigenous place names. KFSK's Angela Denning reports. In Petersburg, there are often Norwegian and English words on signage, like at the airport and downtown storefronts. The current town site was established around 1900 by Norwegian immigrants looking for a good spot to process fish. But the Hlinket culture goes back thousands of years before that. Petersburg's indigenous name is Sitka Kwan. It means people of the fast-moving waters, referring to the Wrangell Narrows in front of town. Sitka. 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 
Leading this workshop is Hune Lance Twitchell. He is an associate professor of Alaska Native Languages at the University of Alaska Southeast. He says using a language helps normalize it in a community. Do you see it when you walk around? Do you hear it when you walk around? He says adding indigenous language to signs in public spaces can help, like the words open or welcome. We can see it, and then once we see it, We've learned how, well, as we learn how to make the sounds, we're going to be curious on how to read those things. The Claussen Museum in Petersburg is starting to include Tlingit signage in its building, and that's something that Twitchell encourages. He says the indigenous words can be in addition to other languages already present, like English and Norwegian. Pushing back on these ideas that there's only room for so many things. Because right? it was called Sitka long before it was called Petersburg. Right? And so... It doesn't mean that it can't also be Little Norway, but it can also be on the channel, right? And so these things, they don't have to compete against each other. Twitchell has been advocating for restoring place names in Southeast Alaska for years. Sometimes names on maps can be racist and defensive, like Seduction Point on the Chilkat Peninsula. The English name, which was officially removed in 2020, referenced a sexual assault of indigenous women by British sailors. So there's a problem there that the indigenous community has to live with these narratives. And it also becomes an insult on top of an act of violence against people. So then we want to sort of make lists of those and say, get that off all the maps. There are offensive place names closer to Petersburg that are being changed, but it isn't a quick process. It often requires coordination between state and federal governments. Twitchell says another step to normalizing a language is teaching people correct pronunciations for existing Tlingit names like Yakutat, Cake, Klawak, Ngun, Skagway, and Huna. Huna, Yakutat, Ngun. I think there's resistance at first. Like, you know, someone was like, why do they want to change the name of Huna? It's like, bro, it's always been called Huna. It's just people mispronounce it. That's all we're doing is fixing the mispronunciation. Another way of reclaiming the language is simply by using it. The more you use it, the easier it becomes. Twitchell says some people might not understand the motivation, and that's okay. It's part of the process. Sometimes if a community doesn't have a regular presence of indigenous activity, then people get nervous about it, and I think they express saying, I don't feel like I'm included in this. But it's really, sometimes people are saying, I don't know what to do here. I'm not used to this being present. The Sitka Festival was held February 10th through the 15th in Petersburg and online. Guest instructors taught Lincoln, beating, form line, and held discussions on topics such as racial equality. In Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News.